we're going to be in John 17 today, so if everybody would turn there, it's on page 1,149 of your pew Bible. That's the red book that is there in front of you, 1,149, where I'm going to read all of John 17 this morning, and I'd like you all to follow along with me. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may also be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There are few passages of Scripture that garner as much attention as John 17. Martin Luther said this about this prayer of Jesus. It is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Philip Melanchthon wrote 
There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. And then Scottish reformer John Knox had this prayer read to him every day during his final sickness. And in the closing moments of his life, he testified that these verses continued to be a great comfort and source of strength in his conflict. This chapter in John's Gospel is the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus Christ. Is it a prayer that we could spend literally weeks studying? But this morning, I just want us to take a look at it from like the 30,000 foot level, an overview level. I want us to see what was on our Savior's mind just hours before He was hung on the cross to pay the price of our sins. This prayer is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. In fact, in many of your Bibles, it probably is labeled that if you have a Bible that gives you subtitles. It's named the high priestly prayer because in this prayer, we find that Jesus intercedes for us as our high priest before His Father. Now, we need to understand something about what it is to be a high priest, especially in light of what it meant for Israel. In Israel, that one man, one priest became the high priest, and he was the one who would intercede before God once a year on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies. It was only one time a year that this man could go into this small room and be a representative for his people before God himself. It was dangerous for him if he did something wrong. If he presented himself in a wrong manner, he would lose his life. And it was a very long and drawn out process for him to be able to get ready to go in before God. But the writer of Hebrew points out that Jesus Christ is a better high priest. Let's look at a few verses. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Basically, He's divine. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Basically, He sat down as majesty on high. He had made purification for our sins, which is what the high priest did. And Jesus Christ acts as a high priest. Then we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, like us humans, in every respect, so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Basically, what the writer of Hebrews is saying there is Jesus Christ had to become man. He had to become 100% human, because only a human can represent other people as humans before God. And Jesus Christ had to become like us so that he could become our high priest. Then in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, we read, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then also in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, we read this, For this was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. His sacrifice was a once for all. He doesn't have to do it continually like the other high priests did. Basically, Jesus Christ is a better high priest all the way through the book of Hebrews. 
He doesn't have to offer continuously offerings to God to atone for the sins because Jesus Christ through his death atoned for the sins once and for all. He is the perfect high priest. He is sitting and interceding for us now at the right hand of the Father day in and day out. He doesn't just get to have access to the Father one day a year. And because of his ability to uh, be our intercessor for him, because he made the sacrifice once and for all, we have the privilege of doing what? Coming before God ourselves each and every day. Whenever we need to come to God, he's there because Jesus Christ was our great high priest and offered himself as the one-time sacrifice. And now he is eternally our high priest. So Jesus Christ now, we see as he's praying, he's just hours away from his death on the cross. And we understand that this prayer is his high priestly prayer because in this prayer he is going to intercede for us on a number of things before God. And I want to give you kind of an outline of what's been happening. The evening when Jesus made this prayer began with a foot washing where Jesus himself washed the disciples' feet to help them understand that they were to be servants in this world even as he had served them. Then there was a celebration of Jesus' final Passover meal, which we call what? The Last Supper, that Jesus could, would eat before his trials and his death. And this would have been a very exciting time for Jesus' disciples. You see, in their thinking, and the disciples that were around the table with Jesus at this last Passover meal, in their thinking, he was the Messiah. They had come to conclude that this was the promised Messiah. And they surely expected he would soon overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom. They had seen him triumphantly enter Jerusalem just a few days before. And even though Jesus was disliked by the religious leaders, they knew his popularity, popularity with the people was growing continuously. This would have been an exciting Passover meal. They were eating the Passover with their Messiah just before he was going to take over, depose Rome, and establish his kingdom on earth. The crowds that hailed him, as we said, their king, and laid palm branches before him while greeting him with those shouts of what? Hosanna, as he entered Jerusalem. However, this meal didn't turn out like the apostles, the disciples thought. During the meal, Jesus revealed in chapter 13, and we're just looking at this as, a, as an overview, in chapter 13, verse 20, in verse 21, we see that Jesus revealed he was going to be betrayed by Judas. They didn't understand that right then and there, but not very many hours later, they would understand exactly what Jesus was talking about. This was not what they expected. How could the Messiah be betrayed? Then he also said he was leaving. He was leaving in chapter 13, verse 33. He was going away rather than building his kingdom. He was going to go to a place where they could not follow. Can you imagine sitting at the table with the, the disciples at this time? They're going, this is not what we expected. How can, how can he be the Messiah if he's not going to set up his kingdom? He's getting ready to leave, and he's not even going to take us with him. Then we also see that he would be abandoned by them. Starting with whom in chapter 13, verse 38? Peter. He said, Peter's going to deny him how many times? Three times, and Peter stood up in his righteous, in his self-righteousness and says, Lord, I will not deny you three times. And not very long after that, what did Peter do? And who else was scattered along with Peter? Every single one of his disciples. And he said, you're going to leave me. Not only am I going to leave you, but you're going to, you're going to abandon me. Can you, again, imagine the disciples sitting there 
around the table, a time that they thought that Jesus was soon going to present himself as the Messiah. But now he's saying that Judas is going to betray me, I'm leaving, and you are all, you're all going to abandon me. Jesus understood his disciples would be dismayed at this point in time in the evening, so he comforts them with a promise of future glory in John 14. So you see we've moved from John 13 to John 14. You see how we're kind of walking through uh, this last evening. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. And what's he promised them? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He comforts them with a promise of future glory. He's just crushed their hearts. I'm the Messiah, but I'm not going to do this the way you think. And they're dismayed. They don't understand. And he says, but I promise you a future glory. Does he promise that same future glory for us? He does. And Jesus further encouraged them with the promise of the Holy Spirit who would come to them after he left. Look at John 14, 26. He says, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He says, I'm leaving, but I am not going to leave you by yourself. My Father is going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. My Father is going to uh, give you a way to talk to Him through the Holy Spirit. My Father is going to make you alive through the Holy Spirit. He says that He's coming. The Holy Spirit would come to them after he left. They would not be left alone. And then he uses an illustration of the life-giving relationship between the vine and the branches in chapter 15. He uses uh, an illustration about how the branches are abide in the vine and, and they're healthy and they grow and they become like the vine to remind them that their faith in him had brought them to a close saving relationship with him. He says, I'm leaving, but you... Have a close saving relationship with me, even though I'm going to leave. You see how he comforts them and encourages them, even though he reveals to them things that would have made them dismayed. He also encouraged them, reminding them that this saving relationship with him would cause many things to happen in their life. And we see in chapter 15, after this parable, he says that they will bear spiritual fruit, that they would be powerful in prayer that they would have a God-exalting life, that they would be able to obey, that they would have supernatural joy in their lives, and they would have a sincere love for others. He says, because you have this saving relationship with me, because you abide in me as the vine, uh, as the branches abide in the vine, he says, this is what's going to happen to your life. This is what you become. And even though they wouldn't understand all of this right then and there, this would have brought encouragement to them. Think about it in your own life. This is what we can expect, being part of the vine, being abiding in the vine who is Jesus Christ. We we can bear spiritual fruit. We can be powerful in prayer. We can have God lead a God-exalting life. All these things because we have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus assured them that their sadness over his death and his leaving would be temporary. 
In John 16, as we move closer to John chapter 17, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And you want to know something? Did that come true? Did that prediction come true in their lives? Every single one of the apostles would have said so. Can you imagine the apostles' joy when they, after they had gone through Jesus' terrible crucifixion sequence and His dying and Him being placed in the tomb and then three days later He appears to them in the room. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine how everything started to come together that He had been teaching them all this time? You see, we can have that same joy. But we don't have to wait because we know now the rest of the story. We know now that Jesus Christ died and rose again. We know that He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as we see in John 17, that He is our intercessor. So it is in this context, this, this flow of events that we've started in chapter 13 with the cross just hours away that Jesus begins to fervently pray what I just read in John 17. And I like really how John MacArthur sums up the context of Jesus' prayer in a very, very poignant way. And I'm just going to read what John MacArthur sums up this context. The unfolding drama, he says, of redemptive history has reached its apex. Plans made in eternity past were finding their culmination in time. The hour had come in which the Son of Man would offer Himself as the perfect and only atoning sacrifice for sin. The hour had come when the sinless one would be made for sin for believers that they might become the righteousness of God in Him. The hour had come when Christ would cancel the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This was the hour when the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah's death would be fulfilled, when the serpent's head would be bruised, and when the suffering servant would be pierced through, our, through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was the hour of Christ's triumph over the princes of this world and the kingdom of darkness. It was the climactic hour when God, through Christ's sacrifice, would defeat sin, death, and Satan and redeem a people for Himself. With the hour of supreme suffering and even greater victory at hand, and with His terrified and heartbroken disciples still surrounding Him, the Lord lifted His eyes to heaven and prayed. Though the words of this prayer would be magnificent in any context, the palpable imminence of the cross makes Christ's plea as poignant as it is profound. Wow. The hour had come. All history had made it to this point. God had controlled nations. God had controlled time. God had controlled everything. To come to this point where just in a few hours Jesus Christ would become a sacrifice for our sins. The hour had come. And even though the disciples were heartbroken and didn't understand and their whole world came crashing down around them because they really didn't understand what was going on because this wasn't how it was supposed to happen, Jesus says that I will come back. Jesus says I will have victory. This prayer that John records in the 17th chapter of his gospel Jesus takes His disciples and each one of us before the throne of God with Him. 
And it is there that we are privileged to see what was on Jesus' mind just hours before his death. Think about that. We are privileged to come before the throne of God with our Lord and Savior to hear a perfect prayer. I know in my life, with my sinfulness, that I have never offered a perfect prayer to God. Think about that. Our prayers are always tainted in some way with our own desires and our own wants and and our own manipulations of this plan and God's plan, right? But here we see a perfect prayer. A perfect prayer. And we're privileged to go to God or go with Jesus Christ to God to see Him. And what we find in this prayer is wonderful. And I want you to understand that the outline... For this prayer is fairly easy as far as an outline goes. It is actually three concentric circles. Three concentric circles. It's not a unified prayer. You can't take one part out and preach it without preaching all the rest of them because then you kind of miss the point. And in that inner circle there that you see is the first five verses. And this is where Jesus prays for himself. John 17, the last part of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's talking about himself and his relationship with his Father. The next circle out, the next concentric circle is verses 6 through 19. And this is where where he's praying for his disciples, starting in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. And as you read down through there, you're going to find out that the people that he's talking about are the 12 disciples that are listening to this prayer. So he prays for himself and some things that he requests from God about his glory from verses 6 through verse 19, a major section of this prayer. He prays for his disciples. What a privilege to be able to sit there and listen to Jesus Christ pray for you personally. That's what the disciples we see here in verses 6 through 19, that second circle there, the next one out. In the last circle, which is verses 20 through 26, take a look at that, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, those are His disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Who is that? And remember what I just said about being present when Jesus Christ prays for you? Guess what he's doing right there? He's praying for each one of us. Now, we don't get the blessing of hearing his voice and being in his presence, but here he says he's praying for future believers who would follow Jesus Christ because of the testimony of the 12 that are there. That's the outline, the broad outline for this prayer. And even though this is the outline of Jesus' prayer, I am, as I said earlier, just going to direct your minds to four main themes or four main points just to help us get an overview of what this prayer is talking about. You see, because like I said, it would take us weeks to go through, and I just want to raise this up and give us a broad overview. But even in this broad overview, we will find great comfort in our lives in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I want you to notice something, that in the first five verses, there's a focus on a shared glory, a focus on a shared glory between the Father and the Son. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. 
And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Then jump down to, chapter, to verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What we see here is that the, the hour has come now for the Son and the Father to be glorified. There's this shared glory. He says, Lord God, uh, Father, you glorify me so that I can glorify you. There's a, a, a desire there for a shared glory. And the hour, he says, has come. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, uh, he had repeatedly, over and over and over, said what? This is not my time. We see that, let me give you a couple of examples of that in John 2, 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, this is at the, the wedding feast, and they're running short of wine. And Mary comes to him and says, you need to do something, and turns around and walks away. And, he's, and Jesus said to her, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has what? Not yet come. It wasn't time yet. And then in John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always there. He's talking to his brothers. They said, it's time for you to present yourself. If you are the Messiah and this is who you are, then you need to go up to the Passover. And he says, my time has not yet come. But we find out here in verse 1, the hour has come. The hour has come. His time had come to be glorified, to bring glory to the Father. And we, need to, we come to a point where we understand that the greatest display of God's glory more than any other event in history is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is His most glorious moment on this earth. You see, it's the cross that reveals His righteousness, justice, and holiness in requiring His death to be sacrificed that will appease His Father's holy wrath against sin. That's what the cross represents it reveals god's righteousness justice and holiness in requiring his son to die but we also come to understand that the cross also demonstrates god's grace mercy and love amen it it doesn't just point that that you are focused of god's wrath that you are the focus you are his enemy but it also says he loves you and he has grace towards you and he uh, wants to have mercy towards you and that's why i'm sending my son it is both it's both. And I want you to notice how Jesus viewed the purpose of his hour that had come, the main purpose. Look at the last part of verse 1, that the Son may glorify you. Jump down again to the first part of chapter, uh, verse 4, I glorified you on earth. And then also verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. The purpose of this hour that had arrived Jesus' dying on the cross was so that the Father and Son could share in each other's glory. That the Father and the Son could do what? Share in each other's glory. Those who would watch the events of the cross unfold in the next few hours would only see this as an hour of failure, disappointment, confusion, and pain. But from the throne of heaven and from the cross of Calvary, it is viewed as a time when the great glory would come to both the Father and the Son. Often we look at the, the cross and we say, what a waste. An innocent man being brutally beaten 
But Jesus Christ and his father knew that this was going to be the one event in all of human history that would bring him the most glory possible. Because it took care of both sides of the coin. It took care of our sin that earned us death and the wrath of God and made us his enemy. But it also brought what? Love, grace, and mercy to our lives through the death of Jesus Christ. This reveals so much about our salvation. Our salvation is no way ever to be focused on us. I want you to hear that again. Our salvation is in no way focused on us. Never has been, never will be. Jesus first and foremost died on the cross to bring glory to His Father and to Himself. Yes, we receive a great gift when God drew us to Himself. Yes, we receive justification, adoption, redemption, eternal life, and much more when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. But our salvation primarily was designed to bring glory to the Father and to the Son. Our salvation was not to be focused on us. The Father and the Son receive abundant, infinite glory through Jesus' death on the cross. But how is that glory displayed today for the world to see? How is that glory displayed for the world to see? Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Who's he talking about? How is this glory displayed on earth today? Through us. We are the walking illustration of God's glory to the entire world right now. The world doesn't understand the cross. They can't understand God's word, but they can watch us and look at us and see our changed lives. They can see how we're changed and how our priorities change. They can see how much we love each other and how unified we are. They can see our gentleness and our kindness and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit boiling up with inside of us. And it draws people's minds and hearts to the one who made it that way, Jesus Christ. And he gains great glory to that. For all eternity, our salvation brings glory to the Father and to the Son. And look what we find in Matthew chapter 5, a familiar passage for many of us. Matthew chapter 5, you, who's you? Us, are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light, up a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to you for all your good works that you do in the world? Absolutely not. If our works bring people's attention to us, they're worthless. If we do our works to, so that people pat us on the back, they're worthless. They have no eternal value. But if our works bring glory to God because they point to Him, then our works have eternal value. And those are the only things that will follow us when we go to heaven. This means that our lives now are to be lived in a way that everything we do points to people to the glory of God. The chief end of our lives 
I want you to listen to this. The chief end of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then I want everybody to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Peter's writing about the, us being the stewards of God's grace here. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality one to another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And listen to verse 11. And whoever speaks as one speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that what? In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. What is the point of you being saved? God's glory. God's glory. Let me ask you a question. Why did you want to be saved? Why did you want to be saved? Answer that question in a succinct way in your mind. Was it simply to avoid the pains of hell? Or was it simply to, so that you could be with your loved ones who have gone on before? Or was it simply to enjoy the beauty of a new heavens and a new earth? These are all benefits of salvation, but not the primary purpose for salvation. Who is the focus on those things? We are. And what we see in John 17, the focus of our salvation, the lives that we live after salvation, is to bring glory for God. If that's what you're living for right now, then you have a good handle on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's not what you're living for, then you have not yet to come to a place where you appreciate the gospel's chief end, which is God's glory. Our salvation is not about us. And Jesus makes that clear. Our salvation is about God's glory. And that's what Jesus is saying in the high priestly prayer. I'm coming to die for the sins of the people God has given me. And that is going to bring me and my Father great glory. I pray that what we've seen so far this morning has helped you see that in light of your salvation, the greatest thing you can accomplish in this life is to bring glory to the one who has saved you. In light of what we've seen, I hope and pray that you've come to understand that the greatest thing you can ever accomplish in this life, whether it is parenting, whether it is working, whether it is going to school, whether it is walking down the street, whether it is uh, whatever it is, I want to bring God glory in this because that is the reason and the purpose I live and that is why the gospel is on my lips because I want to bring glory to God. The next theme I want to kind of bring to you, we see that in the first five verses. There's much more there, but remember this is a, a 30,000 foot view of this passage. And what we see next is a request for preservation. A request for preservation in verses 6 through 19. And this is the, remember the circles, uh, the concentric circles? This is the beginning, this is the second circle. And it's focused on His disciples And as we read earlier, Jesus was concerned about His disciples here. 
He knew they were going to be scattered. And we knew that. Look at, back at verse chapter 16. If you're turning in your Bibles, uh, chapter 16 of John, look at verse 32. Behold, our hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He understood that, that they would be scattered. He knew the world was going to hate them, and we see that in chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He also knew that the evil one would be coming after them. Look at the next verse, verse 15 of chapter 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from what? The evil one. His primary concern was that he was leaving them and that they would be left on this earth. That's what his prayer is in verses 6 through 19. That is culmination. If you want to just boil it all down, his primary concern was that he was leaving them and he wanted God to preserve them when he was gone. Look at verse 11a. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. He says, I'm, look, I'm leaving. Look at verse 12 and 13. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, with which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you. But now I am coming to you. He's saying, I'm leaving them. We also see it again in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why? He's leaving. He's leaving. But in his concern, he doesn't pray that they would be able to come with him, but that God would preserve them after he left. He wanted God to preserve them. He goes, I want you, please, Father, to protect them because I'm not going to be here to protect them. That's what he's praying for them. You want to know something? That same prayer is for us too. Do we need His protection? Do we need God to help us persevere and to preserve us in our faith? Absolutely. Let me ask you this question. Why was Jesus going to leave? Why didn't He just stay? Look at verse, chapter 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having what? Accomplished the work you gave me to do. You see, Jesus Christ understood that this was such a certainty as, it's, it's as if it had already happened. He says, I have completed my work. And basically he's saying, I know it's coming. Nothing's going to change it. There's no way out of it. I know that the cross is coming and I have completed the work you have done. That's why he was going to leave. He's done. And what's he say on the cross? It is finished. His task was done. That's why he's leaving. Jesus prayed this as, as if he had already completed the work of his death. Why must the disciples stay? Why couldn't the disciples go with him? We know he loved them. We know he wanted to protect them. But why did they have to stay? Why couldn't Jesus take them with him? Because their work was just beginning. Jesus' work was done. And now he has given or will be giving work for us and his disciples to do until he comes back. And at this point in time, their work was just beginning. Here we find Jesus' prayer providing a clear transition from the finished work of Jesus Christ on this earth to the unfinished work of his disciples and every Christ follower that would follow. Our work is not done. It is unfinished. 
And what is our work? We spent months in Acts. And our work is what? To spread the gospel to all the ends of the earth. To our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our families. That is our work. Everything that God has given you is to be put towards that work. Your hobbies that you enjoy are not bad in and of themselves as long as they are part of the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to everybody who will listen. You see, our work is not finished. And you as an individual know your work is not finished. Why? Because you're still breathing. You know when your work is finished. And that's when you see Him face to face. And until then, our work is unfinished. And that is why the disciples couldn't go with Him. And that is why we're not with Him. Because our work is not finished. Jesus had kept them and guarded them during His ministry on earth. And now He is asking the Father to preserve them so they would be able to complete the tax that they had been given. Look at the last part of verse 11. I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He says, Lord God, please preserve them. A request for preservation. The evil one, Satan, cannot stop anyone from coming to Christ or cause anyone to lose their salvation, but he will do everything in his power to interfere with the task that you and I and every Christ follower has been given to do. And their task, again, our task is to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that Jesus has provided a way of salvation through his death on the cross for anyone who would believe in him and place their faith in him. That's what we are to remain faithful in. And what is Satan going to do about that? Satan is determined to interfere. And you want to know something? You and I so often forget that we're in a war. Day in and day out, we are in a war. There are no days to skate. There are no days when we can lay off our weaponry. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, who is what? The evil one in our passage today. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil one in heavenly places. And without Jesus Christ and without salvation in Jesus Christ and without understanding what the armor of God is, you will fail every day because it is as it is be strong in him and what he provides. You see, our task is to make sure that everybody hears the gospel and Satan is going to make sure that he tries to hinder that task at every corner, at every point, at every second, every time you think, Lord God, give me a way to witness to this person who wants to stop Satan. We are in a war and we need to understand that. A war so dangerous that Jesus himself asks his father to protect those he loves. Satan is real. He is determined to distract you from your task. He uses the things of this world to distract you. And he plays us against each other through our pride and selfishness. One of the sermons I listened to this week was by Alstar Begg. Here's what Begg says about this. Show me believers who are always fighting one another, and I'll show you believers who forgot to fight the devil. Show me believers who are always fighting one another, and I'll show you believers who forgot to fight the devil. Because he is using that to do what? distract you from spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus asked his father to watch over his disciples to preserve them as they fight against Satan, the one who seeks to destroy them. Praise God, Jesus, being God in the flesh, absolutely knows the Father's will. And when he prays, please preserve them, we know God has answered Jesus' prayer because it was a perfect prayer. There was no option. There was no possibility, let's put it that way, for God not to answer Jesus' request here because Jesus was God and he is praying the perfect prayer. And so do we know that God is answering that prayer even today? Amen. He is answering that prayer every second of our lives. Every time Satan wants to tempt us, every time Satan wants to turn us against each other, every time Satan wants to distract us, God is there to preserve us because he's answering his son's prayer just hours before he goes. Yes, we are in a war. Yes, it is difficult. And we will garner many, many scars We will garner physical scars, mental scars, emotional scars, but we can be confident that God will preserve us in this war. No one, not even Satan, will be able to destroy us because Jesus prayed that God would preserve us. Let me ask you another question. Jesus prayed that God would preserve you on this earth, that he would protect you from Satan so you could tell others about their sin. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Day in and day out, are you seeking to bring glory to God by fulfilling the task that He has given you to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you doing that? Jesus prayed that God would preserve us so that we could do it. And if you're a Christ follower, that's what we should be doing. Are you doing it? Is there evidence in your life that you are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others through your life and your words? Is there evidence that you did that this week? Is there evidence that you did it yesterday? Is there evidence that you did it six months ago where you can look back and you can say, I have waged the war and I have presented and kept with my task of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you're saying no, well, there's one of two options there. You need to refocus and uh, re-evaluate your life and look at your life and say, Lord God, and and go to Him and pray that, Lord God, I have been sinning. This has not been the reason why I'm living. You are not the chief end of my life. I am. My hobbies are. My work is. My family is. Lord God, please forgive me for that. And Lord God, now help me learn to grow in the thing that I need to do, which is to stay on task and present the gospel to everybody I can through my life and through my words, through my priorities. That's one. If you're a Christ follower, you want to know something? God says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once we come to that conclusion and once we know our lives need to be reevaluated, we can come to Him and we know that we are right with God as soon as the prayer is done. We don't have to feel guilty anymore. We don't have to feel as if we failed. We know that we can take a step out right now and begin to change that because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. But there is another option. If you find out that that is not your goal, if you find out that is not the reason why you're living, and if you are become face-to-face with the fact that, that this prayer that Jesus said is not designed for you because you are not one of His, that can change too. Because all you have to do is understand that I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy of God. I am the, going to be the focus of His wrath at the end times. 
and that I have real no, no real purpose in my life except to build what I think is a good life, but when I die, what happens with all of that? It's gone. Take stock of your life. Write it all down. Write everything that you possess on this earth in a list. Then take it, set it on fire, because that's all it's worth. Because everything you're working for right now is worthless without Jesus Christ. You will not take any of it with you. It will not allow you to stand before God and say, look at what I did. It's worthless. And if you find yourself there, again, like I said, that can change. That can change today. That can change today. When you come to Him and you say, Lord God, I understand that this prayer was not for me. Because I don't belong to you. And I want to belong to you. And I understand what I am in my sin. And I understand that it can change. That I can be made alive again through Jesus Christ. And that He died for me. And Lord God, I want that. I want to follow you. I want my life to have meaning and purpose. I want this prayer of Jesus to be for me. I want to have his protection and his preservation. I want to have tasks that will last for eternity when I accomplish it. If you find yourself there, and I would love to take some time this next week, whenever you have an opening, to sit down with you and help you understand exactly what that means at a greater depth. We here at Sardis want people to understand why they are being saved and why they need to be saved. We want them to understand what exactly they're doing. And so I would love to spend time with you and walk you through that and answer any questions that you have. And I hope that all of us are beginning to grasp the wonder of John 17, the wonder that Philip McCathlon conveyed when he said, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God to God Himself. What a comfort and confidence we have knowing that Jesus Christ intercedes for us before His Father when we belong to Him. What a privilege it is us having the ability to go through the, to the throne of God at any time to worship, any time to praise His name because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf for God day in and day out. There is never a time that Jesus Christ is not praying for us today for those who belong to Him. Take some time this week to read through John 17. Reflect on the wonder of being able to experience Jesus' coming before His Father with us on His mind just hours before His death. We were on Jesus' mind just hours before His death. He wasn't thinking about the pain. He wasn't thinking about the cross. He wasn't thinking about how it's not fair. He was thinking about us and said, please, God, protect them so they can complete their task. I pray that you're there, that that prayer applies to you this morning. And I pray that that prayer brings you great joy and confidence in the task that you need to do when you walk out that door. Let's pray.